everyone, I'm Nathaniel, and welcome back to the Sandpiper Tapes. This is episode four. Can you believe it's that fast already? I can't believe how quickly October is going by, um, but what are you going to do? So, if you're just joining us, we've been on a bit of a journey so far. Uh, the story goes, basically, that I was given a box of cassette tapes with the word Sandpiper written on the side of it um, during the course of my job. So uh, to bring in a little bit, I am a salesman. My uh, producer, or I guess should say co co-creator of this in some ways, um, Adam is also in the same position. And one of uh, the things that we do is we go to people's houses. And at one house, um, some two ladies gave us this box of tapes. And I think they were wanting us to recycle it. I, we still never really got a straight answer out of that. But when we listened to the tapes, we decided that... Um, we couldn't keep them to ourselves, so we've been giving them out to you, uh, kind of disseminating them, I guess, through the podcast, uh, talking about them a little bit um, as they go, as we kind of decode them. Decode is not the right word, but just fix it, <laughs> tune them up, make them feel, make them sound a little bit better, so that uh, we can get them out to you and, and really kind of dig down and find out what's going on with this. So, in that vein, um, this week. We were shocked to discover that the tape that we were um, originally going to listen to contained not one story, as we've been kind of experiencing so far, but three. Um, they are shorter, so you have that to look forward to, not quite as long-winded, um, but there are going to be three different stories on this tape. Um, so the tape itself looks exactly like all the other ones, it's just a regular cassette tape, you know, that you would see from the 90s basically um and on this one there isn't actually anything kind of clearly written a lot of it is kind of written and then taped out or not taped out excuse me crossed out um with some sort of marker um but from what we can tell those three kind of storyline chapters are beach day it looks like and then it looks like just the word gone and then the last one seems to be Todd Everly's Nature Hour. Um, again, each one of those has been crossed out, so I'm not sure if this is a tape that was like a rough draft, if they're what, but um, we're going to play them for you, and uh, we hope you enjoy them, and you listen to them, and like and share and subscribe to the podcast. Um, up top, you know, we are having one more episode coming out next week, ready for you on Halloween. And then that's going to be it for us for at least a little while. So, um, you know, if you're trying to get in that last little spooky session before um, Halloween or before, you know, it, the the spooky season ends, um, this might be a great, uh, great thing to let people know about or, or experience yourself. So uh, we'll see you on the other side and we'll talk to you later. Bye. he was going to make the biggest sand castle on the beach that day. He'd spent hours bringing buckets of water out of the ocean and splashing them on the beach around him. Some older kids had taught him this was the best way to get sand that was good for building. Eventually, though, his sand was getting too full of shells and other small bits of flotsam. It wasn't making for very good building sand anymore. It fell apart at the slightest disturbance, 
no matter how many buckets of water he splashed on it. That was when he noticed the dune. On soft, sandy legs, he tottered over to the white sand hill. Up the side, small wisps of lime-green beach grass had started to grow. It reminded Elliot of his daddy's face when he gave him goodnight kisses. His daddy was having his own goodnight under the multicolored umbrella right now. The sand here was different, much finer than the sand by the water. Elliot decided this was exactly the building material he needed to complete his sandcastle. He was no more than a few scoops in, though, when a teenage boy whooped overhead. He crashed down next to Elliot, spraying the sand up into his eyes. They stung, and Elliot brought up two bald fists into them to attempt to clear them out. He didn't hear the sand's soft whisper as it shifted behind him. It was a silent avalanche. Elliot was aware of the weight, and his little body had its first experience with true fear. It was completely dark around him. He tried to open his eyes, but sand got in them. He went to move his fist to rub them out, but realized he couldn't. He opened his mouth to cry for help, but it stung like hornets in his throat. He coughed, and the sand shifted a little, but only enough that it could press down upon him with more weight. His lungs screamed for oxygen, and his adolescent brain went into overdrive, dumping adrenaline into his limbs. But it was all for naught. The sand slid back into place with granulated ease. Gone. Derek was gone. Derek was fucking gone. All that remained was shattered glass and crumbles of shingles. He'd strayed too close to the attic skylight, and now, gone. Leslie's cry in the opposite corner of the attic brought me back to reality. I couldn't even get to her. The hole was in the way, the bare moon casting its pool between us. Get her, Chrissy. Leslie stumbled on her heels the way toddlers do. One arm curled in close to her body, the other meaty fist was rubbing against a leaking eye, her face scrunched and red with fear. Derek had been holding that hand three seconds ago. Now he was gone. She stuttered forward. No, Leslie, no! I cried out, waving my arms in front of me, hoping against hope she would see, she would understand. Damn it, Christina, go get her! My dad said behind me, his arms wrapped around my brother. I couldn't. I would have to pass the shattered skylight, and it was still out there. I took a creeping step forward. Leslie's cries were directionless. She just kept spinning in circles. Then she caught my eye. The cry softened. Her eyes locked on with recognition. A smile started to form again. I smiled back. The thin attic walls creaked around me. Wind howled across the opening in the slanted roof. You stay there, Leslie, okay? You stay right there, and I'm coming to get you. Stay away as far as you can from that hole, Chris. Thanks, Dad. My heart slammed in the back of my throat. I breathed out, for the first time realizing how cold the air was. From out the window came that strange flapping sound. Leslie was getting impatient. She wanted to move. I waved my hands in front of me again, with all my being trying to convince her that coming forward was a bad idea, that doing so was death. Leslie, don't. I edged forward. Reaching the closest side of the moonbeam, I sidestepped to the left. 
Leslie reached her tiny hand forward. It crossed into the moonlight, relief at my closeness blooming onto her face. There's a moment you sometimes experience as a parent that's unlike any other, and it's when you see the accident about to happen. Your child takes a tumble or grabs the hot pan, and you're just a microsecond too slow. And there's a little gap before the surprise and the pain sets in, but you know it's coming. You know what is about to happen, but the damage is done. You are powerless to stop it. Two things happened very quickly. The first was the blur that sprang through the skylight and ripped Leslie into the night sky. The other was my scream mixing with hers. And Leslie was gone. I felt, I actually felt that image sear itself into my brain. Leslie, my baby, her hair ringed in a halo of moonlight. Arm reached out in hopes of my embrace. The arm gone, wrapped in a black cloud of teeth. Then she was gone too, catapulted into the night air, nothing but the shriek of a child left in her wake. An arm wrapped around my chest and pulled me back from the skylight, but I was unfeeling from the waist down. Chrissy, come here. David, you grab that blanket from my chest in the corner over there, and don't go near that fucking hole. She's in shock. We've got to keep her warm. Derek and Leslie. Husband. Child. Both gone. I clung the blanket around me and rolled into the moonlight. Todd Everly's Nature Hour. Todd dropped a few feet further down, and the glow grew brighter. Now his curiosity was piqued. The next fifty feet passed within a few seconds, and he knew that his rope must be nearing its end. Yet these concerns were second compared to the curiosity he now held for the strange glow emanating from beneath his dangling feet. It took him a few more seconds to realize that he was approaching the source. The glow was stationary. Moments later, he had reached the outer edges of the glow and watched as it slowly crept up his legs. The bluish hue reminded him of when he used to go to the aquarium as a child and viewed the fish through the prism of the water. With one last unclenching of his hand, he fell further down the pit and got his first good look at the glow's source. He dropped past a rocky shelf. Growing beneath it was the largest mushroom that Todd Everly had ever seen. And it wasn't the only one. The pit had turned 90 degrees in every direction, forming a natural ceiling for the enormous cave he was now in. More of the mushrooms grew from the ceiling every few hundred feet or so, like some organic chandelier. From underneath their umbrella-like caps spilled the indigo glow, giving light to the floor below. Todd looked down to see several feet of rope coiled like heaps of snake about 30 feet below him. When he reached the cave floor, Todd again tried to radio Samantha on the walkie-talkie. Only Static replied. Marking his rope with a glow stick, Todd released his harness and began to walk around the cave below. As his excited feet shuffled around the floor, he noticed a strange sensation about his head and neck. It felt like rain. Quickly, he felt around his shoulder, expecting to find his clothes wet. Yet his hand came back dry. Still, he felt some sort of substance on them, almost greasy. Pulling a small camping flashlight from his pocket, he immediately inspected his palms. All over his hands was a strange white powder. He wiped them on his clothes 
and held them out in front of himself. Within seconds, the powder occupied his palms again. A small tendril of fear inchwormed its way into Todd Everly's spine. He swung the flashlight towards the ceiling. Anywhere the beam's shaft fell, he noted the powder falling, yet elsewhere it was absent. Finally, the electronic torch found the mushroom and the source of the white powder was revealed. Thousands of spores fell off the cap of the mushroom and towards the cave floor in a perpetual rain of seeds. Curious, Todd placed his hands over the flashlight's lens. He could no longer see the powder. He removed his hand, and the flashlight's beam found the cap of the umbrella and the white rain was visible once more. Vast repetition of the same experiment yielded the same results. The powder was invisible without the aid of an artificial light source. At this point, Todd removed a small video recorder from another one of his pockets. This little camera had summited Everest with him, had survived the crushing depths of the deepest part of the ocean, and been his most trusted companion, apart from Samantha of course, on all his grandest adventures. Todd knew too well that his quests often were viewed through the shameful lens of doubt. He couldn't count the amount of times people had come up to him questioning his methods and or successes. He always treated these doubters with the same amount of love that one has for a fly that won't leave them alone. Yet his personal feelings aside, he was well aware of the fact that absolutely no one would believe him if he returned to the surface with stories of giant glowing mushrooms and invisible white powder without visual proof. So without any more time wasted, he checked the memory card in the camera and turned the power switch on. This is Todd Everly, and I'm currently at the bottom of a very deep hole. He narrated as he pointed the camera skyward. I came through up there, pointing towards the opening that his rope now occupied. The hole itself is about 300 feet deep, and there's no sunlight. How then, do you ask, am I able to be seen by you, the dear viewer of this tape? Well, I'll show you. With that, Todd swung the camera towards the mushroom that dotted the ceilings. Those giant fungi, they emit some sort of light source possibly akin to those of the bioluminescent creatures and fauna found on the ocean floor. He turned the camera back to his face. But here's the best part. He grasped the flashlight and concentrated the beam on the fungal chandelier. Again, the deluge of spores were revealed by the hard light. Look at that, Todd exclaimed. It's like snow. Then Todd did something he hadn't yet discovered. Turning the light towards the floor of the cavern, Todd noticed that the spores didn't pile up on the stone. Instead, once the spores hit the bottom of the floor, they grew clear, then slowly disappeared, like water evaporating from the noonday sun. Crouching low, Todd again narrated his little nature show. Well, look at that. It melts like snow, too. Todd then swept the palm of his hand against the smooth floor of the cave. Ooh, it's quite warm, darling, he said with a grin and a giggle, then continued. There must be some lava or something that flows beneath the cavern. Samantha, baby, you gotta see this. You're gonna freak. It was at this moment that Todd heard a noise behind him and flicked his flashlight onto the face of another person. Todd screamed and fell flat on his back. The flashlight gave vision to a bear of a man who was currently averting his eyes due to its unwelcome brightness. He was completely covered in the white powder. What little Todd could make out of him, he appeared to be clad only in a small cloth tied tightly around his hips. Todd slowly lowered the slight to the floor and the man stood up. 
A shock of black hair grew from a sharp widow's peak and flowed around his shoulders. Beads and other baubles found themselves weaved in odd places within the giant mane. As the man straightened even higher, Todd had more of a chance to take in his face. He had a squat nose and a large brow, with dark obsidian eyes that gazed from beneath it. Todd nervously kept the camera pointed at the man and continued his voiceover. Who are you? Do you live down here? Who am I kidding? There's no way you speak English. The man looked over Todd rather carefully and then the camera. He then turned and saw the rope. Once he spotted this, there was no stopping him. He sprinted over to it and grabbed hold. Todd took the opportunity to keep the camera trained on the man. He had what looked like a crude tattoo of some bird creature carrying one of the ceiling mushrooms in his talons. Todd slowly approached the native and tapped him on the shoulder. Where? He put an arm out and spun in a circle. Are you from? He pointed the finger at the man and made a walking motion with fingers on the other hand. The man seemed to understand and pointed towards a large rock directly behind Todd. No, you can't be from a rock, you big oaf. Where are you from? He repeated the earlier motions and kept the camera trained on the native as he waited the reply. The man looked confused, then pointed again to the rock. Todd sighed, then slowly started shuffling towards the rock. No, I'll show you. You can't go in the rock, you idiot. He then clambered on top of the designated boulder, looked down, and gasped. The rock stood atop a cliff overlooking a village. An entire village. Todd swept the camera from end to end and estimated that it had to be at least a half mile long. By the light of the mushrooms, he could see a multitude of houses and people milling about. Men, women, children, some sort of pets. They were all there. A large black spot near the edge of the village had him confused until he saw a long banana-shaped object being paddled across its surface. Sweet Jesus, they have a lake, he murmured to the camera. Overhead, he saw large bird creatures flitting about. No, not birds, he realized. Bats. Thousands of them, the size of falcons, swooped in and around the caps of the mushrooms. He again turned the camera to the back of the man and looked at his tattoo with new eyes. Not a bird, a bat, a fucking bat, he shouted with excitement. At this, the native jumped, startled, and looked at Todd with suspicion. Two beeps broke the silence. Aw oh, shit, no, 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 not now, sweetheart, he cried, but it was no use. With a flicker and a final beep, his trusty camera shut off, not to return absent the boost of fresh batteries. He moved quickly next to the man. You, Andre the Giant, I need you. You want to go up? He motioned with a finger towards the hole in which his rope was occupying. The man looked deathly afraid. No, 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 don't be afraid, big guy. We're just going to go for a ride. The native looked again at his upturned finger and began to smile. Yeah, that's right, bud. We're going up. Minutes later, Todd had the harness prepared. He was chest to chest with the native and had used the rest of the rope to snake through the harnesses, securing them both tightly together. A fact he was presently regretting. The man smelled extraordinarily bad. But this was just something he was going to have to ignore for the moment. Todd didn't care how bad the guy smelled. He'd found him at the bottom of a 300-foot deep pit. He could smell like a rotten fish coughed up from an alligator with an appetite for garlic for all he cared. Todd was getting the man to the top of the hole. You ready, Andre? He asked, looking questioningly at the large man. The man stared blankly back at him. 
Good enough. He smiled and pulled down extremely hard on the rope. Samantha paced hurriedly back and forth around the lip of the pit. The other members of the expedition had already had to talk her out of diving in after Todd three times since they had her lost radio contact. If he's gone, then that pit is no place for a woman, they cautioned. She scoffed at this. Even though she may not be as attention-seeking as Todd was, she was no less accomplished at adventuring than he. In fact, they had met during the Everest Summit expedition, and she had beaten him to the top, something she never let him forget. So then, when, after almost two hours of waiting, she prepared a second harness for herself to go in after him, it was with the utmost confidence. As she was finishing tying off her own rope to the same tree as Todd's, she noticed the line suddenly go even more taut than lax again. That was their signal. Todd was alive. Grab the wench, she cried. As soon as the guide returned with her pack, she rifled through the contents until coming up with the yellow box with the spool in between. With deft hands, she split the box and clasped the spool around Todd's line. With a deep breath, she flipped the switch. The winch groaned and whirred to life. Slowly but surely, it drew in Todd's line and gathered it around the spool. Samantha stood nervously over the edge of the pit, one hand holding the walkie, the other at her lips as she nervously chewed her fingernails, a habit she'd fallen into whenever Todd was in danger. Todd, are you there? She spoke quietly into the walkie-talkie. It crackled back. Reading you loud and clear, babe. And wait until you see what I got you. The last few feet slid past Todd and his passenger in quiet silence and anticipation. The early morning had passed into the hot afternoon hours by the time he had resurfaced. As soon as his feet cleared the edge of the lip, Samantha was by his side, undoing his harness and kissing him hard on the mouth. For the first few moments, she didn't even notice his passenger, until finally, Oh my god, Todd, where did you find him? Why, at the bottom of the pit, dearest, he answered back with a grin. Where else? Todd Everly, this is going to be the biggest discovery since... since Columbus discovered America. I know, darling. Isn't it great? He answered. And that's not even the best part. Down there, he pointed at the pit, there's an entire village. Samantha shouted her excitement and kissed him again. Five minutes later, and Samantha was enamored with Todd's passenger, or Andre, as he had taken to calling him. Todd smiled off to the edge of the campsite and faced the afternoon sun. It felt good to be out in the warm after the cool, dark cave. The mushroom's light gave off no heat, and though the cave seemed to be thermoregulated somehow, nothing compared to the good old sun. Furthermore, he had examined both his skin and that of his traveling companion. The white spores were nowhere to be seen. Damn, it's hot, he thought. Prickles of sweat bloomed on his chest. It was then he heard the scream. Andre was screaming as if being skinned alive. He was on his knees, bent backwards as if he were trying to reach the back of his head to his toes. The white powder slowly became visible over his flesh. It glowed bright white. His head slowly inched further towards his toes as he howled. God help him, yelled Todd. Samantha and one of the guides tried to lay the man flat on the ground yet he still curled further and further back. His muscles are contracting, Samantha cried. I can't stop it. The man screamed even louder, his eyes bulging from his sockets, mouth locked, gaping open like a fish. His hands somehow found their way to his face, 
tearing skin from below his eyes as his back arched even further backwards. Every muscle in the man's body stood rippling beneath his skin. Andre's legs broke and femurs erupted from mid-thigh. The back of his head touched his heels as the skin on his stomach began to split open, revealing pink muscle beneath, until that too gave away to the tension. The man's intestines spilled forth and his spine shattered. His scream gave out as he died, his head between his toes. The white powder still clung to his body. Oh my god, Todd, Smith ran to him. What happened? I, I, I don't know, he sputtered as she threw his arms around him. God, it's hot, he muttered. Samantha stepped back. What? Todd looked at her. And in that moment, felt the muscles in his back start to tighten. The white powder on his body slowly started to reveal itself. And welcome back, everyone, to this special edition of the Sandpiper Tapes. Like I said, it was a little bit different. Um... As you can see, there's a couple different stories in there. Felt in some ways like those were not connected, but, you know, from the same world as some of those other stories that we've come across so far. Um, but, you know, that's part of the mystery of the Sandpiper tapes. Um, as always, thank you to Adam for doing the editing. Thank you. Thank you. That's a weird phrase. Thank you to uh, NY and CG. You know who you are. They uh, listen and edit and everything that I'm a part of. Um, so thank you to them as well. Next week, the Halloween special. We will be back again. Um, and I think we're getting pretty close to finding out, um, you know, more what we can about the narrator and maybe where Sandpiper comes from. So, um, that's it for so far. Please do like, share, subscribe. Uh, check out my other podcast, Back Row Banter. We just did an episode on The Shining. That was amazing. Um, we are also doing Halloween episodes this week. So, um, go and check those out if you're in the mood for something more visual, not necessarily audio. Um, but that's it. Thank you so much. Please come back again. Be excellent to each other. And we'll see you next week. Bye.